all time I think I made you too small I never feared you at all, no If you touch my face, would I know you? Looked into my eyes, could I behold you? What do I know of you? Who spoke me into motion? Where have I even stood? But the shore along your ocean. Are you fire? Are you fury? Are you sacred? Are you beautiful? So what do I know? What do I know of holy? talk about how you were mighty to save but those were only empty words on a page then I caught a glimpse of who you might be the slightest hint of you brought me down to my knees what do I know of you spoke me into motion where have I even stood but the shore along your ocean are you fire are you fury are you sacred are you beautiful so what do I know what do I know of holy
Thank you, Rochelle, for that. Appreciate it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. All right. We got notes out. Anybody need notes out there tonight? I need some right here. Anybody else? All right. Very good. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And we're going to start tonight in verse number 12 and hopefully make it through verse 18 to finish up chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse number 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And of course, we, we get that same title in verse 1 of the chapter. This is Solomon, uh, son of David, and uh, that's what he, it was self-titled, the preacher. And I gave my heart to seek and search out my wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I commune with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to greatest day. And have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this, is also, that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Tonight we're going to talk about increasing sorrow. Father, would you work now during these minutes as we study this passage. I pray that you give us clarity and help us all to purpose as as we leave this place tonight that we would not live our lives for vanity, but that we would live our lives for you. And I pray that you would help us to gain principles from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we cover these first 11 verses. And we ended last week by saying there's no remembrance of former things. Yeah, there's not going to be the remembrance of things uh, that are to come with those that shall come after that statement from verse 11. Yeah, we talked about how not many people know history and they think that they're the first ones ever to do such and such and the first ones ever to have this thought. And the truth is there's nothing new under the sun. It's just... Uh, knowledge has been around, ideas have been around, emotions have been around ever since God created these things. And so Solomon begins to make this dedicated search. Now, God had already told him, I'm going to give you greater understanding than anybody. I'm going to give you wisdom, because that's what he'd asked for. And when he made the special prayer to God in 1 Kings 3, And and so God was going to give him those things. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 13. And I gave my heart to seek and search out my wisdom. Right? So this is not the same thing as what he had asked for. Now, when, when God said, what do you want? He said, bless your servant with wisdom. But at that point, guess who had his heart? God had his heart. In fact, you can read in the passage where it describes that his heart was at one with God. 
as he began to uh, build the temple and as he dedicated the temple, his heart was at one with God. I want to show you this. Uh, go back, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 8. Yeah, we'll look at the dedication of the temple there. And hopefully this will give us a little bit of clarity just as we get started. I want you to notice a, a statement Solomon made at the end of his prayer of dedicating the temple. First Kings chapter 8. And look there at verse number 61. Look what it says. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God. Now, what this is talking about is to have a single-minded purpose or to have a heart that's at one with God. All right? Now, God called Solomon to be the king, but God did not call Solomon to give his heart toward pursuing earthly knowledge. God didn't ask him to do that. And God hasn't asked us to do that. Um, God has asked us to give our heart single purpose, not double-minded, not spacey, not all over the place, but to have a single heart toward Him. And, and so we see right away in Ecclesiastes 1.13, He says, I gave my heart. Now, we're going to find out that He didn't just give His heart to this. He gave His heart to a lot of things. And one of the things we find out in coming chapters is that he gave his heart to women. A lot of women. And the Bible deliberately helps us to understand in Solomon's life, it, it actually has it, I mean, it's a quote from the Word of God. It says, the strange women turned his heart from God. So the things that we give our heart to have the potential to turn our hearts from God if they're not God. Everybody understand what I'm saying? If we pursue something that's not God, that will turn our heart away from God. And, and so I know we're getting really logical as we start here, um, but as we get into your notes, I, I think you're going to understand the explanation that we're starting with in verse 13. So in your notes, we say this. Through both personal experiences... And general observations, Solomon discovered vexation of spirit. Okay, now that's a term we're going to be talking about a lot tonight. Vexation of spirit. In fact, that's a term that's used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So he says, I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. And he's going to look at other people's experiences. He's going to go with his own experiences, as we were going to find out in chapter 2. And he's going to seek out everything that there is to know. And he's going to know thousands of proverbs, and he's going to write thousands of songs, and he's going to be able to explain all the parts of nature and science and be a historian. And he's going to tell us he was miserable. He was miserable. He knew all this stuff and he was miserable because he gave his heart to it. And I want you to keep going back to that phrase because it's a big phrase. It says in verse 14, 
I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. Now, that's a pretty general statement. Okay? Um, some people would just obviously dispute that. They say, well, they didn't even have microscopes back then. So for Solomon to say he's seen everything under the sun, it's just not true. He had never seen, you know, a molecule. And he'd never seen an atom under an a electron microscope. And, and, you know, you've got all these different things that people come up with. But he's saying, listen, I've generally seen everything that happens in humanity. And uh, notice the qualifier he used was all. Now look at the next qualifier in the same sentence. And behold... All is vanity and vexation of spirit. So how much of what he had seen under the sun was going to turn into emptiness and vexation of spirit? All of it. So he uses the same qualifier both times. Everything I've seen, all of it, turns out to be all of it. And and so the same qualifier being used here. Now, we look at this and... And we begin to process what this earthly knowledge is. And in your notes, we say it this way. Earthly knowledge is a great burden. Earthly knowledge is a great burden. For in desperately seeking it, people are more likely to become fools than wise men. Right? It's it's a paradox. It's hard to get. But it's true. Have you ever seen people who are carefree and have absolutely no burdens? You know where they're at? They're in the nursery. How much do they know? They don't know anything. Where's my bottle? That's what they know. Right? And uh, I want to crawl or I want to walk. They don't know anything. And because they don't know anything, they don't have burdens. I don't know if you ever said to one of your kids who's starting to grow up, maybe 9, 10, 11, and they talk about how's their day at school and how's this going. And um, we have one child who kind of exaggerates this. And uh, she says, um, it's the worst day ever. It's the worst day ever. Well, what happened? And uh, there's some little piddly little thing. And uh, like, boy, I wish my life were that hard. Right? I wish that were the big burden that I have to carry. And, and so we, we began to kind of process that the more we have on our plate, the more we know, the more burdens there are. Now, if you take this over into the book of Romans, chapter 1, it kind of adds up with man's sinfulness. Romans 1, look at verse number 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So see, the more people know and the more people claim to know, and the more people pat each other on the back for how much they know, the more they become fools. Because in studying... And increasing in knowledge under the sun, they still haven't found truth. Truth exists only 
outside of the sun. Talking about outside of our earth, outside of this blob or this planet. And, and so here Solomon's trying to get everybody to clue in. Say, listen, I've tried this knowledge thing out, and it's a burden. Now, there's another way that we can look at this as we see in Ecclesiastes the wording. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes 1.13 again. He says, This sword travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. You've ever been exercised with something? Right? Ever been to a point where it cost you some work? It cost you some anxiety? It cost you some sweat? It cost you some toil? And it says, this sword travail. Now I want you to flip back and we see the root of this, the first mention of this back in the book of Genesis. And Genesis chapter 3. Where is the root of this sword travail? This burden that we have to go through from knowing. Well, Adam and Eve sinned. And so the curse was placed upon mankind. Right now, look at this. First number 16, Genesis 3. We'll see several instances or parts of this. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow. Thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And then you get to verse number 17. Look toward the middle of the verse. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of life, of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. So this toil that Solomon's talking about, it's the curse. The toil that's been placed on mankind by God is the curse that we got through sin. And it is exercising us again and again and again. Do you know, every sorrow we ever have is because of the curse. Every pain we ever have is because of the curse. And yet, if you look at it under the sun, there's no answer for it. Think about evolution is supposed to be making humans better. Right? We're supposed to have fewer diseases than we had back during the period where we first went from monkeys into human beings. And we have more diseases than we've ever had. And we have more problems than we've ever had. And we need more laws than we've ever needed. And the laws that we do have, we don't enforce. And it's worse and worse and worse. And so... Here's this deal with earthly knowledge. It's a burden. There's a toil that takes place on planet Earth because of knowledge. We say next in your notes, and you'll probably be able to agree with this if you've ever gone to college, or even if you're 
still in high school, you may agree with this one. Human knowledge brings weariness to the flesh. Human knowledge brings weariness to the flesh. If you've ever had to study for anything, you know this is true. I remember when you had to pull an all-nighter to do a research or to write a paper or to do some kind of journal, and that was weariness to the flesh. I mean, you're seeing things. You're, your brain cells aren't connecting, and you still don't know how you made it through. And there were, there's semesters in college, literally. I don't know what I got from them, but I can't remember anything from the whole semester. Like, I don't even remember being there. I don't know. I kind of know where I lived because I still lived at home. I don't remember much about where I worked. There's a couple places where I worked. I don't remember any life experiences. I just, it's a weariness. It's a time, and later in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, much study is a weariness to the flesh. And so we know this is true. And so you work hard, and man, you're weary, and you try so hard. But human knowledge brings weariness to the flesh to obtain it. So to get it, it makes us weary. And then, and vexation to the spirit once it is gained. So it wears us out to get knowledge. And then once we have it, it's a burden to us. It just destroys our brains to get it. And then once we get it, it's a burden. It's hard to carry. Because the people who advance themselves with the most knowledge... What do they also advance themselves with? The most burdens. And so it's this circle. They say, Pastor, you're talking in circles. Yeah, because Solomon did. I mean, he's just talking in the circle of the under the sun crowd. It doesn't make any sense. It makes people go berserk. Like, what would make you go insane? This right here. If under the sun is all there is, insanity galore. I mean, that's, that's where you're going to. So he says, I gave my heart. I, I tried. It's a sore travail. And I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. Verse 14. Behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, we say, this next one in your notes. Vexation of spirit literally refers to the inner person being preyed upon, P-R-E-Y-E-D. It literally refers to the inner person being preyed upon. Have you ever felt like the inside of you had a cloud that was moving over? Like it, there was something that was overtaking you, I don't know if you ever wake up in the middle of the night and you think something's wrong, I just don't know what it is. And you start cataloging, okay, did I lock the door? Is the oven off? You know, what's that sound? And you think, and man, you can't, you can't get there. Your mind is trying to process all this and maybe you're going through a tough time at work or something's going on in your family. And sometimes you lay awake and you just think, boy, there's something missing. There's something wrong. And you know what it is? Your spirit's being preyed upon. Now, who preys upon people's spirits? 
Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Right? Lions prey upon things. They're looking for prey. Your spirit is being preyed upon all the time by the knowledge you have of life in general. Like, I guarantee you, if you sat and watched Fox News all day, your spirit would be preyed upon. Right? Because the more you know, the more sorrow you're going to have. And when you talk about what's going on in the world, and you read the newspaper, and you look at magazines, and you look at political journals, there is so much to be disgusted about. And you just start taking them, and you start weighing them, and they weigh you. This knowledge, it burdens us. It brings us down. It preys upon us. Now, in a little while, we're going to see what the actual Hebrew words in these verses, when it talks about vexation of spirit, I'm going to give you the actual meaning. Um, and it's so fascinating what it actually means, as we see in just a minute. Let's, let's go to verse number 15. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. Is that interesting? That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. So scientists tell us that we have to defeat global warming. I'm just going to take one little issue here. All right? Here's my question. How are we going to defeat it? Uh, really, how are we going to defeat it? Because all the ideas that we've heard so far haven't changed anything. Right? And in fact, there really isn't any man-made global warming that's ever been proven except by false scientific journals. Just throwing that one out there, but... Even if we took that issue and you say, well, we're going to get rid of it. It's kind of like saying, you know what? We're going to get rid of cancer. Right? Am I right? This man's had cancer. A lot of people in here, somebody in your family or you've had cancer. We're going to obliterate cancer. Or you know what? You know what we're going to do? We're going to get rid of death. We're going to get rid of death. And a man has big enterprises. You know, one of the big enterprises back right after the flood, they got together and they were led by Nimrod and, and they got to this place and they said, you know, we're going to build a tower that extends to heaven. We're going to reach to God. And every utopian idea that mankind has ever had has failed. Why communism doesn't work. It's why socialism doesn't work. It's why free enterprise doesn't work. You know why? Sinners involved. Us. There is no utopia that will ever happen on this earth as long as mankind's here. And so when you read verse number 15, you have to kind of make a statement like this. 
The more mankind seeks to eliminate evil by human means, the more evil we become. It's just so astounding. The more we seek to eliminate evil by human means, the more evil we become. You know why that is? Because without God, we can't even define evil. See, so what happens is people say, well, we're going to go about this without God, without any of His law, without any of His word, and we're going to get rid of evil. Well, what's evil? What's evil? Evil is to make fun of the homosexual agenda. Right? That's the new evil. That's the worst thing you can do. Evil is to call a person this term. Whatever term it's going to be. That's evil. Well, what about like killing people? Well, that's probably not so good either. Right? How do you come up with good and evil? Without God, there is no good and evil. And so, the very people who are trying to eliminate evil become more evil. Now, I would urge you to read Romans 1 again. Because they said, we're going to go about this without God. And uh, what, what happens? The process. God gives them over to this, and then He gives them over to this. And they keep obstinately pushing against God, and they become reprobate in their minds. That's where the human race is today. Reprobate in their minds. They've switched good for evil and evil for good. And, and now, I, if you tried to, literally, if you tried to walk in with a Northeastern liberal and said, let's sit down at a Starbucks somewhere and let's talk about what good and evil are, you would be like, it'd be like talking to somebody from Mars from a different planet. And they, what are we, where are we talking about? What, what is there? There's nothing that we have in common with what they're saying because they've tried to force God out of it. And it describes verse number 15. That which is crooked cannot be made straight and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. Let's take the second half of it and say this in your notes. There's no way to place into statistical form. Statistical form. Anybody ever have to take uh, statistics and probability? I actually found that an interesting. Yeah, Casey probably had too. Statistics and probability. There's no way to place into statistical form the depravity of man. Our sin deficit is complete. It's complete. Say, well, how depraved is man? Depraved. Yeah, but I mean, how close are we to not being depraved? We're not close. The Bible gives us such easy terms so we can understand it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, how close are we to gaining salvation on our own? We fall short. Well, how short do we fall? Short. People don't like that. People don't like the black and white of God's Word. Where it says there is 
None righteous, no, not one. Well, what about this guy? Nope. What about that guy? Nope. What about this politician? Nope. Right? <laughs> I mean, we get, it, we get into this deal where we try to create a probability or a percentage or a statistic for sin and salvation, and there are none. We are completely depraved, and we are fully in need of a Savior. And there's no in-between. It's not an 80-20, it's not a 60-40, it's not a 98-2, it's not a 99-1. It is all or nothing in Jesus Christ. And so when we see this passage, Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, listen, when you try to do it the earthly way, you are beating your head against a wall because you can't make the crooked thing straight and you can't even define numerically, statistically, you can't even number the problem. can't even quantify it. That'd be frustrating. And it is frustrating. Now verse 16. I want to show you another problem Solomon had. Not only did he give his heart, verse 13. Verse 16 he said, I communed with my own heart. <laughs> So Solomon had a discussion with his own heart. Ever had that? Uh, it's just what my heart is saying. Right? I just couldn't agree with my heart. I just couldn't put my full heart into it. It's so interesting that Jeremiah later says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, evidently not even the wisest man on the planet. He communed with his own heart. He said, you know, I'm going to talk to my heart, and we're going to find the answers here. Yeah, that doesn't work. Even in your heart, wisest man who's ever lived, the answer's not there. If it's under the sun, there's no answer. And so he says, I come to great estate. I've gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom. So, <laughs> we see a couple of things about Solomon as we get ready to close tonight. The third one from the bottom. Wisdom is what made Solomon famous. But he called his own pursuit of it a vexation of spirit. Or, here's the Hebrew term, chasing of the wind. Chasing of the wind. That's what vexation of spirit is. Chasing of the wind. Now the Hebrew word, um, it's one word, and it, that's the term for it. Chasing of the wind. It's used over 300 times in the Old Testament. And it's used as a variety of English terms. But that is the most literal meaning you can come up with. Chasing of the wind. Solomon said, here's what I did. And, and what if somebody came up to you? What if your kids came up to you and they just finished college? And they said, well, I'm down. I decided what to do with my life. And I've got my purpose down. I've got my dream career. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to chase the wind. You're going to what? You're going to work like on windmills? No, I'm just going to chase the wind. I'm going to try to run it down. 
Uh, I'm trying to, going to try to catch up with it. I'm going to chase the wind. Now, most of you would immediately either get the thermometer out or the telephone out to call the ambulance. You, what? Do you know that's what most people do with their lives? Exactly what Solomon did. He chased the wind. And, and here, he basically describes to us how brutal it is to do this. This is why it's also termed as vexation of spirit. It's what chasing the wind is. How frustrating is it to chase the wind? Is there anything more frustrating than that? Trying to get to the source of the rainbow, maybe? Trying to catch a soap bubble and keep it on your hand? There's nothing more frustrating than chasing the wind down. Where does it come from? Well, let's chase it and find out. Where does it go to? Well, let's chase it and find out. I dare you. Just go ahead. Chase it down. <laughs> they say, well, that wind came from the North Pole. All right, well, let's go to the North Pole and let's see. Let's, let's follow it down. Let's chase it. <laughs> it, is, it is ludicrous. I almost said it is ludicrous. Ludriculous. That was almost a George Bush word. It was ludriculous. Um, but it, it's just ludicrous for us to ever think that we could chase down the wind. And that's what striving after the wind is. That's what vexation of spirit is. The literal definition. So let's catch the end of verse 16 again. I want you to notice the dichotomy that Solomon's going to have. He says, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so, so take that into mind, right? He says, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And he had already said that he had gotten more wisdom and knowledge than anybody before him. Right? He had more than anybody before him, and he had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now look at verse 17. And I gave my heart to know wisdom. Now wait just a second. You already have more wisdom than anybody's ever had. You already have more wisdom than anybody before you in Jerusalem's ever had. And now what are you going to do with your life? Well, I gave my heart to know wisdom. What? It's kind of like some people who say, well, how rich do you need to be? Right? You have a billion dollars. Well, I'm just going to keep working. Right? Well, you already have, you're already on the top ten of the Forbes list. Well, I'm just going to keep working. Right? It's like, well, what are you going to gain through all this? I just need a little more. Just need a little more. And you say, well, I didn't think that knowledge was that way. Knowledge is that way. New Testament says, knowledge puffeth up. It puffeth up. It makes you want to know more. He was already the smartest guy around. We say it in your notes this way. The more a person knows, the more he wants to know. And the addition of knowledge becomes the addition of grief. We see that in verse 18. For in much wisdom is much grief. So if you're living under the sun, if all you want to know is what there is 
with the elements of this earth, the natural laws, the things on this planet, the more you know, the more you're going to want to know. Because it still won't be enough. It won't satisfy. In fact, it'll bring you grief. And then we see this last phrase, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Here's why that is. And we're going to find this out at the end of Ecclesiastes, but I'll go ahead and give you a little preview. Last thing in your notes. The wise man becomes more and more conscious of his own ignorance. And his helplessness to truly remedy anything. You know what we're going to find out at the end of the book? Solomon says, I knew it all, and it wasn't enough. And it didn't change anything for anybody. So knowledge isn't going to be enough. That's this first big one that he hits. Now, next week we get into some things where he's going he's to hire all the comics in the land to come, and he's going to see if laughter will be the best medicine for him. And he's going to try wine, and he's going to try money, and we're going to see all the different things he's going to try to make his life joyful. Let's see if it works. I think you already know where it's headed. But that's next week. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in a closing word. I'll go home and eat some split pea soup. Huh? With a ham hock in it? Oh, man, that'd be good. What is it? Tabasco sauce. Oh, yeah. Man. That's talking right there. I, I could do that. How many of you don't like split pea soup? Oh, that's wrong. It's ungodly. That, that stuff is good for you. All right, we have some service groups here to meet tonight. Check in with yours. Father, bless us. As we go through this week, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I pray that our desire for knowledge would be in you. That instead of like Solomon, we say we want to know more on this earth, that like Paul, we would say we want the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That we may know you and the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, being made conformable unto your death. Guide us this week, protect us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.